0: what good are exams anyway? How many forms of government can they support? Can they be a source of shared values? These questions and more on this episode of Footnoting History. Hello, I'm Lucy, and welcome to Footnoting History. Today, I want to talk about China's civil service examinations. This will take us from ancient texts through medieval institutions to modern states. A review of Ichisada Miyazaki's evocatively titled book, China's Examination Hell, states the Chinese were the first people to invent the examination and the first to abolish it. So why did the civil service examinations come into being, and how did they evolve? This is what I will be discussing today and in order to do so, I need to start with Confucius. Confucius lived from 551 to 479 BCE. His Analects, written down after his death, record his beliefs about human nature, proper behavior, and the correct function of the state. Some of the key points it contains, articulating principles that would be foundational to the civil service examinations, are as follows. To learn and at due times to repeat what one has learnt, is that not, after all, a pleasure? Every day I examine myself on these three points. In acting on behalf of others, have I always been loyal to their interests? In interactions with my friends, have I always been true to my word? Have I failed to repeat the precepts that have been handed down to me? A country of a thousand war chariots cannot be administered. Unless the ruler attends strictly to business, punctually observes his promises, is economical in expenditure, shows affection towards his subjects in general, and uses the labor of the peasantry only at the proper times of year. Look closely into a man's aims, observe the means by which he pursues them, discover what brings him content, and can the man's real worth remain hidden from you? All of these sayings, you notice, are directed to the holistic moral formation of the individual and to the good management of a stable, hierarchical society. To both, the recitation of texts and the internalization of principles were seen as crucial. In Confucian teaching, it was key that, to quote again, a gentleman is not an implement. That is to say, Rather than someone with specialized skills to be used like a tool for a single job, a gentleman, and in later days a bureaucrat, would have to be someone with all-around moral qualifications, and thus, a robust philosophical education. The early 8th century CE saw the formal establishment of the civil service examination, which was still not centered on a fixed corpus of texts but Confucianism, with its emphasis on strict moral codes and strict patriarchal society, predominated. These values were promoted by officials at all levels of government and those learned in law. For those taking up official posts, the civil service examinations were a universal requirement, and these played a key role in the standardization of law across the vast Chinese empire. Tang China itself remained largely inward-directed for the first half of the dynasty, so fondly remembered as a golden age. It was cosmopolitan, yes, but its structure remained fairly rigid. The regiments around the cities and the hired nomads on the borders were largely focused on protecting frontiers, and the hierarchical social systems with a few elite families at the top were inherited from Han China. Now, the influence of these elite families was viewed, logically enough, as potentially dangerous by the emperors. Historically, aristocrats were often responsible for fomenting rebellion and constructing rival power groups. The employment of civil service examinations, and thus of an extensive professional bureaucratic class, was also, for the emperors, a way of creating a counterweight to aristocratic influence. This use of the exams was largely down to the policies of Empress Wu Zetian. Her reign, too, saw the expansion of what some scholars have called a Confucian cultural zone in East Asia. We also see the adoption of Chinese models of bureaucracy in Korea and Vietnam, as well as Japan. The growth of professional classes creates numbers of people who are socially and economically equipped to take advantage of the networks of Tang China. The creation of this cultural zone created translocal culture not dependent on political or ethnic identity. Exams were an avenue to geographical as well as social mobility, although considerable family prosperity was required to support studying for the exams in the first place. Undergirding the power of the vast Tang state, then, were bureaucrats with a lifetime of training, certified by the empire's civil service examinations. Building on existing imperial infrastructure, the Tang emperors expanded their educational system, based on multiple strains of Confucian and Taoist learning. Confucianism and Taoism were both sets of principles for moral life that did not rely on sacred figures. The exams were designed not only to prove expertise and to ensure the support of empire by a class of well-educated men, but to spread shared culture and shared values, the exams took the form of writing on Confucian texts, what we might call close reading. So ancient texts like the Book of Songs and the Book of Rites continued for centuries to form the backbone of political training in China and other countries that came under its influence. The Song Dynasty, which lasted from the 10th to the 13th century, continued to refine the system of the civil service examinations with different levels for local, provincial, and elite bureaucrats This had a great deal to do with what rank an official could obtain, and this rank, in turn, was linked to social status. The 12th century scholar Hong Mai, in his Tales of the Listener, collected numerous anecdotes illustrating the importance of the civil service examinations. One young man prayed to a temple god to find out whether he would pass the examinations, and if so, what rank he would obtain. He was told, to his very great excitement, that he would be among the high-ranking academicians. Some even prophesied that he would be an academician of the Dragon Chart Hall. This was not only the most awesomely named rank, but also the highest rank of academicians, usually given to a state councillor. Dreams about the examinations and their results are fairly common in Hong Mai's work, suggesting that anxiety dreams were common to the prospective scholars of Song China. One such dream is even represented as having prophetic power over several generations. The scholar dreamed that the god Zitong gave him a scroll saying, the news from the jade hall approaches, your name ranks high on the golden tablet. He died as a school administrator, in other words, in an entry-level position, but his son, Huang Gong, placed first in the examinations and went on to obtain great honors. This is cited in the text as an example of the great and heritable power of prophetic dreams. Now, in the 13th century, as some of you may know, the Mongols conquered much of what was imperial China, as well as, indeed, much of their known world. The Mongol system of administration was brutally effective, but not suited to long-term stability. While the Mongols ruled China under the Yuan dynasty, the civil service examinations with their emphasis on Confucianism were not used. But in the wake of Mongol decline, once again, the traditional Chinese institutions of government were revived. And these were founded on, yes, nothing other than the civil service examinations, and it is in this period that we see four ancient texts codified as the basis of official examination subject matter, and they remain the same for approximately 600 years. Under the regime of the Emperor Hongwu, beginning in 1368, Neo-Confucianism, with its emphasis on strict moral codes and strict patriarchal society, prevailed. Hongwu himself, of peasant origins, was notable for his distrust and recurrent ousting of high officials. This first emperor of the Ming dynasty presided over the reform of government, and also over the restriction of women's rights, forbidding their inheritance and forbidding likewise the remarriage of widows. Ming China exerted considerable influence both on the Lê dynasty in Vietnam and on the Joseon dynasty in Korea. This created what some scholars have called a Confucian cultural zone, aided in no small part by the choice of many Goryeo and Choson elites to take the civil service examinations. Education in the Confucian texts and commentaries on them was not just limited to those who excelled intellectually or to those who had the means to pursue years of dedicated study. Confucian texts, with their moral and social advice and philosophical principles, were used as the basis of literacy teaching in Chinese village schools in the late imperial period. So boys who ended schooling after five or six years would still have a grounding in the texts that were used as a basis for educating government officials and forming and implementing laws. Continuing on to advanced education and study for the exams was not any longer exclusively the province of the privileged. Boys from both merchant and farmer families often stopped their education after six years or so. Some of the wealthy might continue in hopes of a bureaucratic career path, and the less wealthy, but intellectually promising, might be sponsored by wealthy patrons to do the same. The extent to which the civil service examinations served as a stimulant to social mobility in practice, as well as in theory, has been much debated by scholars. In the Qing dynasty, from the mid-17th century onwards, elite families might purchase bureaucratic offices for their sons, taking a lot of uncertainty out of the process of passing multi-level examinations, as well as, obviously, concentrating power in the hands of a few. By the late imperial period, exams were formalized as a three-day process. It is this examination that created mandarins, So if you've ever heard an expert in anything, particularly politics, called a Mandarin, this is why the education and expertise shared by this class of men have become emblematic for acquiring and, crucially, communicating specialized knowledge. So what about those who failed the exams? I would be remiss if I did not include such men as well. One of my favorite stories, told about a Tang period scholar by Mark Edward Lewis, is that a man who had reached the highest level of examination, held at the imperial palace itself, went to consult the lists, did not see his name on the list of successful candidates, and proceeded to run into a hedge. Remembering my first college math test, I sympathize. Shi Wan Chu has pointed out that, despite the desire of some candidates to flee into the nearest greenery, Failing a civil service exam didn't mean the complete end of the candidate's career, nor did it mean that their years of study went for nothing. Late imperial examiners would return the exam papers to the candidates with detailed feedback. They would point out strengths and weaknesses, much as professors do on essays and exams today. They would praise what was done well, sometimes even blaming other examiners for the candidate's failure to pass. In other words, All of the candidates, not just the successful ones, had evidence of their hard work, and their hard work was appreciated as a moral achievement, whatever the bureaucratic results. The civil service examinations ended with the Chinese Empire, replaced in the 20th century with different systems and different standard texts. But what examiners and candidates want out of exams, evidence of complex ideas engaged with well, That hasn't changed very much at all. Interested in owning some Footnoting History merch? You can find out more through our shop link at www.footnotinghistory.com. Want to support the show and keep it open access? Our Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash footnoting underscore history. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Footnote, or on Facebook and Instagram at Footnoting History. And of course, the best stories are always in the footnote.